This is Color Speak, unveiling truth for light. Hi, I'm your host, Janet Huxley, author J.M. Huxley. Welcome to this podcast to unveil truth and uplift you. Here you will find truth talk for relevance, restoration, social influence, and dynamic purpose in all places and all seasons. Here we will unveil truth for color. Light is where you'll find truth. Truth is where you'll find color. And color is where you'll find God. Color is God. It's his love for you. Have you ever thought of color this way? Well, obviously, light is what makes color happen. And color as a product of light, God is light. So color testifies to the everlasting goodness of a good God. One who wants to fill us with light and truth and joy. Color. And my friends, our stories are color. Our testimonies of rescue and redemption matter because triumph testifies. Just think about it. If darkness was allowed to function unrestrained and unresponded against, where would we be? Would there be any happy endings at all? More good exists than bad. Even those without faith can see that. But with a God who loves us through our free will choices, who's in control, we are meant to triumph and to share those stories of victory over the forces that come against us with others. That's what Color Speaks all about. Today will be another reminder of our sacred purpose in all seasons. We need to restore our relevance, step into our influence of those around us. At the very least, we need to share our victory in Jesus. And that happens by the way we act and the way we love those around us. It's what social influence looks like on a healthy level. Well, God keeps putting people (laughs) with stories in my path. I meet like-minded people everywhere. And maybe you're nodding your head in agreement and smiling because you know this is true. Maybe you meet people in department stores, markets, in the nail and hair salons, at a coffee shop. I've met them all those ways. In fact, my kids always laugh about how I meet my best friends on the street. But you know what? If you know Jesus, you've probably already experienced this. There's something about his light that draws us together like moths to flame. I met today's guest in an elevator this summer in downtown Kansas City at the Lowe's Hotel. She was there for a Garth Brooks concert. I was there for my daughter's bachelorette party. We were still talking as the elevator door opened on the ground floor and we moved into the lobby to continue talking as my daughters were waiting to go to breakfast. I don't know if you remember I'm speaking to Mary. Mary Doherty is someone with a beautiful story and one she is using to help others live a life free from the burdens of alcoholism and addiction. Oh my goodness, what a calling. I get goosebumps when I think about it. In recovery herself, she uses her experience to assist others in finding the help they are seeking to live life free from the strongholds of active addiction and the behaviors around it. Mary personally is aware of the struggles deep within those of us with chemical dependency who try to hide our active use while attempting to maintain our work and family life. Recovery, she says, is not a one-way street. What is good for some may not work for others. And she wants to help you or someone you know. She has a great testimony So I asked her here to come talk with me. Welcome, Mary, to Color Speak. It is so good to have you here. Oh, thank you, Janet. Gosh, that was really nice. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. It's all true. (laughs) I'm so excited to have you here. And wasn't that such a God thing to meet in the elevator? (laughs) Oh, my gosh, yes. (laughs) He always surprises me with the next location for meeting my next best friend. It's awesome. Yeah. You know, I, I, I remember a time when golly, I think I was, so part of my story and I'm pro I'll probably kind of bounce around, but, um, That's I, good. I started, um, I was a mother at the age of 15 
And that's amazing. How is that? Let's just stop down there for a minute. Yeah, that's a lot. Well, yeah, there's a there's <laughs> some other stuff there too, but um, I don't know. Just there was something. Uh, there was always something within me and I just, I remember it as being this hard, I don't know, just, just a drive to be different than my parents. I was raised in a very um, conservative, a very conservative Baptist home. We went to church, all of our friends, um, we went camping with, you know, the Lees, the Franks, the, the Johnsons, we, we were all very tight. We had dinners at the Joneses and um, they were all church family. So we were raised very, very well like that. I don't know. There was just something different with me. And I just always thought I was a bad seed or a black sheep or something. Why do you say that you were different? Because you felt like a fish out of water around these people? Like you just didn't identify with their thinking or, or ways of living? Um, I think it was more ways of living, um, kind of. And, and you know, I always use the, the excuse, and I call it an excuse now because I just did, but I always felt like I was treated very different by my mother. I was the youngest of four kids, and they say that when I was born, my dad, <laughs> he got those masks at the hospital and he made all the older siblings just wear him, you know, because Mary was coming home from the hospital. Well, you know, I mean, that made <laughs> me feel super special. I was daddy's girl from the get-go. Um, of course, I found out later, you know, we we are all, you know, all of my sisters and my brother, we all have a special place. Um, but that's just, you know, we all have our own special place in our own special way with our parents. And well, that's the way it is with God, too. That's yes. a reflection. He loves us all equally. But you and I were yeah. just talking about that before we, we got on air, how different all of our experiences are because, and they're supposed to be, because we each have a different, unique relationship yes, with our God. Yes, very, very much so. I totally agree because I did not see that. So I felt like this super special person with my dad and I just knew there was something special going to happen in my life yet I also knew there was something like I would sit down when as a as a little girl I would play with my with my Barbies and um so I had a, lo a lot of alone time I guess not that I was a lonely child I don't think that but I played a lot by myself um, my, it, it was my oldest sister, Diane, she was like six years older than me. And then Kathy, who was four years older. And then David, um, who was three years older and David and I fought like cats and dogs. <laughs> I love him to pieces now. Yeah. You usually do. Yeah. You usually do with the closest yeah, sibling. Yeah. Yes. So, you know, he was always mama's boy and I was daddy's girl. That's the way I saw it anyway. And then as I got older into more of, um, the drugs and, stuff. And it's funny because when I say a little girl to me today, a 12 year old is a little girl, but yeah, for sure. A 12 year old for me, I was very, very much into drugs and alcohol, sex, drugs, and rock oh, and roll. Oh no, at 12. Yes. Very, very. So much. where were you living at the time? With my parents. I was and... living with my parents in California. Um, that's okay. where I grew up. You know, I remember my mom telling me that yeah, I was the only kid out of all of these families that went that way, you know, so I became the bad influencer. Um, but I still felt kind of like a round peg in a square hole or a square peg in a round hole, something like yeah. that. And um, so I would just leave and I didn't care who I hurt. But when I when I left, Janet, I would leave for months sometimes at, at a time not just for a couple of days. As a teenager? Yes. Where would you go? Um, I would hitchhike to wherever. Oh, no. I would. That's so um, dangerous. I can imagine. I'm already imagining that God, his hand of protection over you and your guardian angels surrounding you. You know, he really did because there were incidents. There were times during that time 
that he not only protected me, but he protected my family after I had been found because I had my alias that I went by and I usually looked a little bit older (laughs) than I was, which is, I think, normal. I don't know if that's normal or not. But anyway, I got caught and they sent me to what's termed as a cool home. And I hated that place. And I was supposed to stay there for a few days until my dad came and got me. And I just decided I didn't like it and I was going to leave. So the the person who picked me up and was going to, I don't know, take me to another place to hitchhike south. I always went south towards Los Angeles. Wasn't, you know, that wasn't healthy, <laughs> shall we say. Yeah. I felt really uncomfortable and I made him stop and got out. And I think it was a tactic by the cool home group or or whatever at that time. And uh, it didn't work and I wasn't going to fall for it. And, you know, I've met some really nice people along the journey, you know, people who dads who picked me up, you know, just gave me money, said, sleep in the car until you've had some rest and here's some money. And, you know, if it was my daughter, I would want her to have money. But those same dads weren't in a position to try to encourage you home to their place or to another safe shelter? Because I I feel like here's some money, sleep in a car. I feel like I have a knot in my throat hearing that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was just so adamant. And that was only one time. Most of the time I would always find uh, um, I would have to do things to get what I wanted. And um, and I did. So but there was other times where I remember this guy saying he had some drugs and I was like, yes, I want those because I'm going to go on this long journey cross country. And he um, took me to his place and he started to handle me roughly. And I said, no. And he kept going. And then I said, no, again. And it's like all of a sudden he stopped. And to me, Yes, that was the hand of God. Yeah, it sounds absolutely like. the hand of God. I get goosebumps just thinking about that because you know there's really creeps out there. Oh, yeah. And, I have so many questions, and so many care. thoughts about that. Yes, right? Yeah. It's it's just that drive, that selfishness and self-centeredness, um, which is part of the disease. So you you're in LA and or I guess bouncing between LA and Northern California, where you live. And as a young person, you are, call it whatever you want to, stubborn, fearless, <laughs> um, not thinking necessarily clearly. What happens next? Well, when it went on. I couldn't count how many times that I had run away. There was one time that really sticks out in my life. And that was, I had continued on a journey. I ended up in Las Vegas and I grew up in just North of Santa Barbara. So that's like 600 miles away, I guess. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I had hitched a ride. Someone had told me to go to find a place at the Salvation Army. I did which I had never stayed any place like that before. I was always able to find a place. But anyway, so I'm walking down the street and this um, really nice looking man in a convertible stops the vehicle and asks if I want to ride. And of course, what do I say? Yes. Mm -hmm. He was very clean cut. To make a, a long story short, I had hooked up with a biker gang and they were going to have their big rally, uh, a big bike rally that weekend. And I was all excited. They told me about everything that was going to be there, the drugs. I mean, it's just one big party. And I'm like, yes. And then one of the ladies, you know, and I had, again, I had my alias, but I didn't change the name of the town I went to. And so I got a call from one of the guys, old ladies, and she says, Hey, you know, you want to come over to my house tomorrow and just have coffee. And this is the part that gets me to Janet. Okay. So I'm like, I had to ask the guy that I was staying with if it was okay. Huh? I know. Right. I mean, okay. So were you in a relationship with this guy? Yeah. I oh. hooked up, yeah. I hooked up oh, okay. with the guy in the club. 
And, um, you know, I just, I was there for the party. And so... So in other words, his hold on you developed pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. And you were in a place where you felt as though you needed to answer to him that he yes. had this control over you. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's part of the um, deal. It's the control that I give to the men in my life over me. Right. So in, anyway, that's a whole nother thing that I've learned. <laughs> over yeah. The I have some other questions. Okay. Okay. So in, anyway, I go over to her house. Uh, she comes and picks me up. I go to her house the next day. And here is this strange clean cut guy sitting on the steps into her back door. And I had no idea who he was. And then I go through the hall and turn to go into her kitchen and who is there, but my dad and my sister. And apparently that guy is her now husband, I think. So I missed my sister's wedding Wow. and her dating him really. So I was gone for a while. You know, I was just flabbergasted. So, of course, they sweep me up. They take me home. And I am so mad for years because I missed the party. They took me, I think it was that same day, they drove me straight to our other friend's house, family friends. And Mrs. Hines came over and spoke to me. And now we knew Mrs. Hines from the church. I mean, gosh, you know, they had a bunch of of kids. So she came over and she was in tears and she was begging me. She says, Mary, you do not know what these people do. Um, so apparently the treasurer was her brother and he, she had begged him for years to get out of the club and he couldn't because he had too high of a ranking position. Okay. I need to stop you. I'm confused. What club? The, the gang. I'm sorry. The biker gang. Oh, the biker gang. Yes. Okay. I gotcha. So, so the biker gang that you had hooked up with and the guy that you were hanging out with that developed this control over you, he was part of that gang. He was part of that and gang. And this was sort of a covert ops mission where your family negotiated with this other person to get you back. Mm -hmm. And that's why you found yourself at this lady's house who's talking about her brother being in the gang. Okay, I got it. I got it. I'm tracking. Yes. Okay. Yes. So I'm finding, you know, at this point, I'm finding out how everything happened. So this guy that I was staying with, um, we all got together and, and partied. Well, one of the guys, this big guy, that's how I had met her, um, Mrs. Hines's brother. You know, I told him, oh, yeah, I'm from, you know, I'm from this town. And, and yes, my parents go to the same church as your sister. And ah, yeah, so I mean, it's just clicking in his mind. And, and he knows what happens to the runaways to the young women who go the girls who go to these runs, if they come back, they are torn up really bad to where they have to have hysterectomies. It's just not a good thing. And he has worked in saving some of these girls. This is what his sister, Mrs. Hines, is telling me. He and his old lady and, and his mother have um, hidden some of these girls for years and getting them out, many of them. God bless Mrs. Yeah. Hines. And she was just in tears. And this particular gang was also devil worshipers. And they, her brother had adopted a little child. And when the child was two years old, they had threatened to take the child from him and use it as a human sacrifice. And this, I, you know, I, I believe, I mean, it's for Mrs. Hines. One of the things to how this happened, I'm going to back up, I guess, a day or two. But Mrs. Hines also told me, she said, you know, Mary, she says, I had just, just got done praying. And she says, God gave me this vision. Now we're Baptist. Okay. And, and at least I didn't believe in miracles of today. Okay. But okay. she had just got done praying 
She says, Mary, I got done praying and I had this vision. The vision was of Jesus knocking at the door. And he said, Mary's going to be okay. And she was just as surprised because our families were not that close. Okay. And then not just a second later, the phone rang and it was her brother, the treasurer of the gang. And he said, there's this girl here. Her name is Mary and you need to get her out of here now. You know, that is, and that's, um, quite, that's quite a testimony, Mary, of God's hand in protecting you. My heart goes out to your parents at this point, what they must have been going through. What was going on with them? They must have been just, their hearts must have been absolutely broken Yeah, to think that you were with this group. Yeah. I, I you know, I can't. I say I can't imagine, but as I got older, I remember my mom telling me for years, yeah, just wait, you're, you know, you're going to have a kid and they're going to do to you what you did to us. And, um, (laughs) um, because my mom was just so hurt and I lost my, we lost our mom last October. So we're coming up on a year pretty soon. And, um, I, you know, in, in listening to your other podcasts, I'm like, I don't know. I think I'll I'll ask my dad to record what his feelings were, you know, kind of during that time, because I didn't ask a whole lot of mom because I, I did go. I mean, I've been sober now for eight and a half years. And so I've made amends to to my family. You know, I have a relationship with um, with all of my siblings, with my um, parents, and my mom got to see me live right and healthy. <laughs> and so I'm I'm grateful, extremely grateful for that. But we didn't really talk about the hurt. The one thing she did tell me one time when when her and I talked after I was sober, she said, Mary, we quit trusting you when you were 12 years old. And that was it. Okay. I, you know, I'm not going to even speak into that, but yeah. other than that's unfortunate that she made that comment the way that she did. Why did partying appeal to you so much? Why did the idea of moving around in a transitory state appeal to you? Why didn't you want to stay grounded or safe within a shelter where you were loved and cared for? You know, um, I really believe that is part of the disease of alcoholism. That and the I self in me is what I've kind of learned over the years. I'm like, oh, I can relate to that because there was no reason. For years, I always said, you know, it's just something about my mom. You know, I just, she's too crudest. You know, she doesn't know about life. I just wanted to be so different. I looked like my mom. I was a blonde version of my mother. Everyone said, oh, you look just like your mother. (laughs) And I don't know. I I, I honestly do not know other than um, what I know today is that the disease of alcoholism, um, we, those of us that have that, we just, we think differently. Yeah, I mean, we just see things differently very much from a um, it's all about me attitude. Yeah, well, I have my own stories. Um, As I shared with you earlier, early, early on when I was very little, my dad was an alcoholic. And I remember him going away to a place Mm -hmm. where he was cured and he came home and he never had another drink. And even as a young adult, We never talked about it. I mean, we always understood it, but he and I dined out a lot, especially after my parents divorced. And he was always saying, Uh have a glass of wine. You know, he he didn't, it wasn't as if he didn't feel that I shouldn't do that or he wasn't encouraging me or even discouraging me. It was just matter of fact. 
And I always understood that that's where he had been. And I always Mm -hmm. admired that. But I do have a recollection from when I was really little. And my mom was standing at the doorway. I was the oldest of four. And she was stirring something. And oh, gosh, it must have been one or two in the morning. And she stood by the doorway and she's stirring this pot. And our doorway, when you walked in, immediately to the left was the kitchen. So she had it on a counter standing there stirring. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm going to... I don't know whether she told me this because I mean, I was little or I remembered it, but I clearly remember the incident. She dumped an entire huge container of ice water on my dad's head when he walked in the door and that was ice. She was stirring the ice was, (laughs) was in this bucket. So I had, you know, little things, little things like that, little remembrances. (laughs) And there was another time she had four, I mean, she had four kids all basically 16 months apart. So she had, she had a lot going on. It was like having quadruplets. And she drove me to I remember going up and down looking for his car at this one specific bar he frequented in Pacific Beach in San Diego. And so it was called the Night Owl. And so Uh we would go to the Night Owl. And she would look for his car. Remember one time flattening his tires so he couldn't drive home drunk. And another time she sent me into the bar. And I must have been four or five years old, little tiny thing. And I like you, I was, I was emboldened. I had, I had no reticence whatsoever to walk into this very crowded, very adult atmosphere and look up and down the line of men sitting at the bar. And they all had their backs turned to me and the bartender noticed me and saw this little thing standing there. And he said, well, who are you? And I said, I'm looking for my daddy. And then one man at the bar whipped around and it was my dad. Oh! And he got down off that bar stool and walked me out pretty quickly. And I think it wasn't long after that, that he went through the program. I want to say it was a Schick program or Schick Shagel or something like that program and and never had another drink. So I get it. I don't know what my dad's story was. He became a great father. And I never really we never really revisited that subject. And he died early on in a plane crash. So I that's, that's the best memory I have. And I don't know what sparked it. He did serve overseas in Korea. Um, But I understand. And I and I subsequently have had, you know, I know, I know people that have gone through similar situations like you have, but never anyone who's who's been transparent enough to tell a story like you're telling where you were literally on the street for years and had no desire to be off the street, it sounds like. Right, right. I think that kind of came later in life. I, I ended up at the age of 12, uh, I, I got pregnant. And um, wow, 12. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at, at the age of 12, I, I did have an abortion. Um, it was just, you know, it was really quiet. I felt really bad for my family as, as I, as I look back, of course, my siblings did not know, I think, well, they'll know now. Right. But, um, my one sister, um, did know and Kathy anyway. Yeah. That, and it was really hard to look at my dad. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it was, I remember it being hard to look at my dad. My dad would look at me and then he would, you know, it's almost like he couldn't look at me anymore after that. I know there was a disappointment. I want to just say before I lose this train of thought that, you know, your father in heaven is not that way. There's nothing that you can do that I can do that would cause him to look away. He always is so full of love for us, no matter what we decide, no matter our choices, no matter what we've done. He loves us the same. And, and so that's the beauty of the contrast between an earthly father and a heavenly father. I I love my dad and, and I just couldn't imagine having, you know, that kind of disappointment in your child. And, and for me, personally, I I mean, what, what, what could I do? Well, I want to, I want to stop down too and just wrap my arms around you proverbially (laughs) Um, because you're in good company here. I mean, I've had a number of women that have admitted to abortions on this podcast. I admitted to my own, which was shocking for me because 
honestly, I repented of it and I had moved on and I just didn't know that the Lord was going to use it. Now, he forgives us our sins and they're they're blotted mm-hmm. out from his memory. But at the same time, there are those that we can use to really come alongside of our brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage them and to uplift them and to assure them of that same forgiveness. And so mm-hmm. that's what we're doing here. I mean, no judgment, no condemnation. And, you know, it's just been interesting that the Lord just keeps bringing these topics up to me. And it's what's really surprising to me is the number of women that have been through those things. And some are willing to admit and come forward about it. And others are extremely reserved. And I and I get that. And uh, and I take a deep breath and kind of gulp every time because uh, my friend Martha who's been on this program and is the owner of Grace and Truth Radio World out of Dallas, has her own stories to share and how she's ministered to others in that venue, in that arena. And I know she has a conference coming up in Dallas in March, and she's asked me to speak there. And I'm thinking, oh, Lord. (laughs) I mean, I said (laughs) yes, but uh, yeah, whatever will I say? I just ask that he readies me for that because you know it's a tough it's a tough yeah. subject and I, I love your transparency and your willingness to talk about it for the benefit of others so my hat's off to you good job yeah. girl okay so you know I need to move forward obviously as I look at the clock and thank you and I could be here like all of my guests for hours and hours and wouldn't it be great if people had time to listen to a five-hour <laughs> podcast but that's not the case how so <laughs> So it sounds to me like you you heard the words. So you were so you went through this ordeal at 12. Was that before or after the biker gang? Where were you when you were rescued? And my question when it came to Mrs. Hines and what she had to say, were you responsive to that? Did you think, oh, my gosh, I was really in harm's way. I need to change my act. No, I didn't. Oh, I was okay. I, I was actually <laughs> I was. I was actually still really angry. I was angry for years. And, you know, the really odd thing about it. So I had, I got pregnant um, at the age of 14, had my baby at 15. Um, My parents ended up letting me marry this man who I left town with. And I was gone seven months and I had to call and tell my dad that I was six months pregnant because, um, because the social, we called it the welfare office. You know, I hadn't had any prenatal care up until this point and I knew I was getting close. Anyway, he basically, he gave me an ultimatum. He said, you have 24 hours to call your parents and let them know you're pregnant or I'll call them. And the last thing I wanted was for my parents to find out I was six months pregnant by a stranger. And I wasn't about to call my mother, so I called my dad. Anyway, so I went home, and I remember my oldest sister, um, Diane, and I'm so grateful for the relationship that I have with her today. Her, she's six years older than I am. When I saw her for the first time, you know, here I am, I come back after being gone seven months, I'm all excited, I want to see my family, and she comes up to the door, she knocks on the door, I open the door, and I give her a hug, and she stands there with her arms down, just really, really cold, and oh, that hurt me for years, and um, it wasn't... I don't know. It just, it, it literally took so many years to have a relationship with my sister. And, you know, today we can, we call each other and we can um, joke and she's the best aunt that any of the kids could have. (laughs) Um, Mm, That's wonderful. Yeah, she's just wonderful, but um, I'm, I'm trying to move forward here. So so you raised what is it? Was it your son? Yes, I actually I have three sons. So um, two of them, my two oldest are by my first husband. And then I had, you know, all this time I'm still partying, whatever in between. I end up living with my parents. Um, but you were married at 15. I was. Yes, I was. And how old was your husband? He was 20. He was 22. Yeah. 
Okay. He was 22. And that didn't work out. And so you're back with your parents. Yeah, I'm back with my parents. And then I got pregnant again. And um, I, I chose to have this baby. And I actually was going to give him up for adoption. And my dad and I worked at the same company and he was getting ready for work one day. I was probably about eight months pregnant. I had already chosen the family in Colorado and I was just determined I was going to give up my baby. And uh, my mom was really upset with me that I had gotten pregnant anyway. And um, Mm. my dad just didn't say much until this one day. And he said, you know, Mary, he says, I know it's your decision, but I won't ever get to see him play baseball. I won't get to go to his games. And it was like, that's all that it took. And I said, forget it. My dad, actually, when he retired, watched the boys and and my little Andrew. (laughs) Yeah. So he babysat Mm. my my sons for me for several years while I was with that company until I remarried. And I married a guy from Texas and he brought me to Texas and then he left. But um, I ended up marrying again for 14 years. And this man, the disease, you know, it, it just continued to get sicker and sicker with um, the drugs, the alcohol. You know, I had been taught, Janet, that, you know, this, this alcoholism and addiction is just something that could be prayed out of me. And so all during these times, you know, I was searching. I've, I've been to many churches, many denominations, many non-denominational churches, um, always seeking, always, you know, I study the Bible because it shows study, you know, study to show thyself approved. Um, I've been involved in, in cults, ones that met in the home and we were very special. You know, I like that special thing. Um <laughs> Yeah, it was just really crazy. And um, I just ticked up with some weird stuff. Sounds But all the time, you know, it's like I had this belief in God, but I was still trying to fix everything myself. So I didn't know anything about the the disease of real alcoholism. I mean, it wasn't in my family. I just figured I was a, a rebellious child that it could be prayed out of me, but it couldn't. So what was, what was the catalyst? What was, what caused you to finally stop and become sober eight and a half years ago? So the 12 steps that were on the wall were really what my parents were trying to teach me all these years. I remember that it was like, oh my gosh, it's like treat others as you want to have them treat you. Mm -hmm. And then the next time that I had to go in, it was (laughs) because it didn't work the first time. Then it was, um, I learned that it's more of a spiritual program and I'm like, oh, okay. Because I knew, I always knew there was a difference between God and religion. Somehow I knew that part. So I I could get the spiritual program or, you know, understand that now at that point in my life. The third time I had a spiritual experience, the place I went to was in the hill country of Texas. You know, I mean, I remember walking back to my dorm and this deer was maybe 20 feet away from me or something and our eyes locked and there was something that happened. I felt it in my heart. So that was in January of 2013. But then I still had to go out again for about five days. And um, so my sobriety date is actually March 21st of 2013, because I finally, I finally heard what I needed to hear. When I went in that last time, I had a counselor who came to my, to my bedside and detox. And I told her, I said, but I just got on my knees and, you know, prayed with my sponsor on Thursday, you know, and then I picked up and drank Friday. And um, she says, but Mary, you didn't even go through all through the steps. And so what I've learned, Janet, is that the steps of this 12 step program for me was every it was like taking the Bible. By this time, I had studied a lot of, you know, the Bible had all these concordances, all this stuff. And it took it and put the put it into a way that I could understand it. You know, I'd been told for years 
um, from behind the pulpit, they would say, have faith. And I thought it was a wish, you know, just wish. Well, because then I'd also been taught, well, you know, you don't just get caught up in works only. What I've learned is this, the action that goes behind the faith. Now, this is taken out of context, but I still love this verse. It is James, Jesus's brother said, faith without works is like a body without spirit. In other words, you can't just believe. We have to be very mindful of not getting caught up in works, driven towards salvation. Mm -hmm. Salvation is a free gift. Grace is a free gift. We need only accept. But once we've accepted there is a natural response that creates action. So like in someone like you, your action now is taking that and helping others. And I, and I want to get to that, but, you know, stopping down here again, I understand that it sounds like you needed the, the action part was missing so that you could connect. You needed to connect and you needed to do so in a way that under, that you understood. Like, so what I, what I think when I see all of this and I hear what you're saying about your experiences and, and just yours are sort of separate and apart from from the actions or any perceived judgment of those around you. However, I, I know that I have gotten bogged down at times thinking, why is it that the God I know to be true and that I serve and who is my best friend looks so much different than that other God that those people are purporting is the same? right? Because it's different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I sometimes think we bring our humanness into the religious experience. And that's why religion has become a bad word. We can still trust the Bible as the infallible, inerrant word of God, 100%. I believe every single word Uh in there is true. I adhere to the creation in six days, everything about it, 100%. I don't argue it. But at the same time, I think we in our humanists can take what has been said there in the way that God wants to love on us through his word. And we concoct these, I don't know, these boundaries or obstacles or something that prevents us from truly connecting. And it sounds like that just hearing will have faith was so nebulous to you because it's floating out there somewhere with all of those voices that sound you know, about the way that God should be viewed and religion and all of that. And that's not, that's not what we're doing here. You know, I've always said, this is non-denominational right here. Let's just get back to basics. There is a God. He sent his son to die for our sins. His name is Jesus Christ. And he wants to redeem us. And through his Holy Spirit at work, as part of the Trinity, we can be assured of not only salvation, but his support here on earth. And, and I love that you finally... You needed to connect. You connected with that. And I'm, oh, I'm looking at the clock and I'm thinking, honestly, we have just a few minutes and that's just wonderful. But I want to get to what are you doing now? I I have two questions for you. I don't know if you can do this succinctly and it's okay if you can't. But what are you doing now to help others, which I which is what really drew me to you and your story, Mary, it just blows me away. And I just I want to say one thing before I move on is I think you need to write a book. I mean, this is your story is amazing and so redemptive. What a story. What a what a happy ending you are writing uh, right now. So first question is, what are you doing now? And second of all, tell me about God. How 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 did you come around to knowing him again? Um and what is the evidence? you have for his existence in your life. Okay. Okay. All right. So what what I'm what I'm doing today, what I get to do today, Aww. right? Is um I'm I'm gonna go back to a period in my life where I was actually there was a period of about four years, I guess or so, five years maybe, where I went to church on a regular basis. And I got to go over to um, what is it? Um, Pensacola, Florida, and um, they had a big revival there. And so I got to go partake in that. And I remember going to, I think it was a Waffle House, and um, there was a woman walking out there, obviously homeless or something. And, and I got to go, uh, I, I just went up to her and I talked to her. 
And, you know, I just felt God's presence. And, you know, of course, I didn't have what I needed to sustain a walk with Jesus. And um, for some reason, that always stands out. So I get to, you know, one of the things that um, that the Lord has really taught me through this walk is to love and tolerance, you know, because I was very, very judgmental. If somebody didn't believe my way, mm-hmm. they were wrong. And um, so I've learned that we all have our path. And I truly, truly believe and I know this, I mean, it's, it's written everywhere that God has instilled within every man and woman, this desire for him, this desire to seek him. Yes. I mean, that's why they have the hieroglyphics and, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. all this stuff. Good point. There's just this yearning. And, um, so just, well, I had to learn tolerance. I had to learn tolerance and love because I, I get to witness to people by my actions, you know, not by preaching, but um, but by my actions and the experiences that I've had. And so I get to my job today is to actually I call it walking people in. I I'm an admissions director at a treatment facility it's retreat at Sky Ridge, and um, we're very different. People call asking for help or uh, maybe they're loved, you know, they're calling for their loved one, help for their loved one. And I get to walk them through that process. And, you know, one of the greatest rewards, Janet, is (laughs) when maybe I've even talked with someone and for whatever reason they came in on the weekend, I wasn't there. And, you know, then I go see, you know, I try to bebop in there um, and have lunch with them during the week. And um, anyway, they'll say, oh. You're Mary. Thank you so much. Or, you know, yeah, Mary, I really appreciate you walking me in or, you know, it really makes a difference. I think if someone tried to do what I did and they don't have that experience, we wouldn't be where we are today. (laughs) You know? Right. And I'm Um, sure that you can see that God knew, he foreknew he was already in your future when you were going through all that stuff in your past. And he foreknew yeah. the place that he would have you in to help others recover and to know the truth. And I love what you said earlier about judgment, because I always think, man, if you start judging people, get ready, because God is going to work you over. There is no room for judgment at all, ever. I don't care who you think you are. Yes. And I'm like, okay, even when I start to go there in my mind, because we do, we're human. I think, oh, God, Mm -hmm. help me. Help me right now. Because I don't like your discipline. I don't want want to be disciplined. I, I, I want to up front adhere to what you say in your word. And that is judgment is up to you, not up to us. And so we don't define, we don't define the rules. We don't, that's not our role. Right. Our role is to love other people. That is it. (laughs) That's our role. That's it. Now, Ezekiel tells us that we need to guide people back around to the truth as lovingly as we know how to, but accept them like our father does where they are. Yeah. And I I love that you're in that place. I'm sorry. I just have to say, I can imagine those people coming into you and feeling the love. And also, I want to say, I'm sorry, one more thing. I mean, what you said Mm -hmm. earlier about being in the presence of God when you were with that homeless person. So I've done that. I've been with the homeless and I've served them before. And what's really interesting is I have been, it's almost like you're sucked in to this, this thing that is so holy and and this presence that is palpable mm-hmm. that you don't feel when you're going to the mall <laughs> because right. you know what it's I mean like, like another it, realm. it's crazy so you can understand what missionaries in perilous situations are feeling because there's something about it when you're ministering ministering you know God's presence is in the homeless it's he's in the broken and downtrodden and those that need rescuing he's there they yeah. don't feel it, but necessarily, but yeah, I'm sorry. It's just so holy and so cool. <laughs> just, yeah. I, yeah. Anyway. Oh my gosh. Well, uh, you know, unfortunately we're going to have to wrap up, but I, you know, yeah. tell me, 
tell me what that's like for you. I don't care if we go overtime to to be in that position after all that you've been through. It is amazing. You know, I can't, I, it's really cool. I get to work all the time, which is okay. You know, I still have to learn balance in life. I still have to, I still have to learn balance, but it's the best thing when I am talking with someone on the phone. Um, and then they get to, you know, come into my office. Usually when I'm talking to them on the phone and I have to ask a whole lot of questions um, is when we get to know each other. And um, yeah, it's just beautiful. It Because I can relate and they know that they can relate to me. And to think that... Um, I remember at one time, I know that that the whole deal of, of your podcast, and this is so cool for me, um, when I found out about you, Janet, because, <laughs> you know, I had to go listen to your podcast <laughs> after I met you, was, um, you know, I, I believe that we all have a purpose. And, and that yes. is, you know, I got sober at the age of 50. And yes, I had a really cool job, um, but I can't, you know, and I, I thought I loved my job, but um, when you have, when you find your purpose in life, that is the cream de la cream, mm, yeah. you know, that is the cream de la cream, it, you know, getting to help people and, um, there's just nothing better than that. You know, I get to help people, not just in a professional, but then on a, um, you know, on a, a non-professional as well. You know, I have my friends and and I'm really surprised sometimes when, you know, someone will come up to me and say, hey, Mary, you know, would you, you know, can we sit down and, and um, can you mentor me? And I'm like, what do I have to give? You know, but but God puts people in my life at the right time for a reason. And um it it's it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um yeah. I wanna tell you, <laughs> you know, it kind of makes me emotional. Well, it's not the first time. Here on the podcast, <laughs> I always say, that's my spiritual gift. Tears. I have met a lot of people and I've taken business cards home and I've just filed them thinking, I'll connect. But God kept pinging me after I met you. And wow. I didn't lose your business card in the fun that we had, you know, with the girls. <laughs> and I... I kept it on my desk and I just kept feeling this spiritual nudge, call Mary, call Mary, reach out to Mary. And I guess I reached out to you first on LinkedIn and mm -hmm. it was just, it was a hundred percent a God thing. And now hearing your story, which as I shared with you, I, I like to not know a lot ahead of time when we sit down for these interviews, because I love the organic, supernatural way of things, the way he operates and leads. And so I had no earthly idea that your story was as complex and frankly riveting as it is in terms of the way that God showed up time and time again. Like, I'd even have to ask you about miracles because you illustrated so many as we were talking. And I'm sitting here thinking, it really does need to be a book. So when you're ready to start writing... <laughs> call me <laughs> because it's, it's good. I mean, it's, it's really, it's really encouraging. I'm as encouraged by you. I'm more encouraged by you, honestly, that you came to sobriety at 50. And I'm encouraged by those ladies, for example, that I've spoken with that are writing and publishing in their eighties. See, that oh gets gosh, back yes. to you know, I think we have an enemy that's always whispering in our ear. We've messed up. We've missed the good parts of our life. We've missed so many opportunities. The rest is all downhill. My friends, this is what 
Color Speak is all about is encouraging you because you have divine, sacred purpose until the very last day you you're here on this earth until you draw your last breath. Yes. Yeah. And so I so believe it. Yes. I don't think, yeah, I don't think I'll ever, um, I, I can't ever picture myself not doing anything. You know, I remember the days before it's like, oh yeah, time for retirement and not getting up and going to work or, you know, if all I had to do, and I think kind of the, the, you know, the pandemic and stuff really showed me this too, is like, I was so grateful that I had something to do because I can't just sit and do nothing. I can't sit and watch TV and, and, you know, I'm, I'm just really grateful that, um, that God has, has given me life today that I wake up, I, I do a gratitude list. I, I used to be super religious at it, you know, daily and <laughs> golly. Now I think I'm good. You know, if I do it once or twice a week, that's good. But it's, it's with a whole group of people um, that we just send our gratitude list because we have to remain in gratitude. And it's not just on in Thanksgiving month. Um, you know, just to be thankful, but it's to remain gracious, you know, um, grateful for everything, for waking up, breathing, for waking up in my own bed, knowing where I'm at, um, you know, having a car that gets me back and forth to work. Um, yeah, it's, um, I'm very, very grateful for life today. Today at the age of 58, Janet, I am completely and totally on my own the first time in my life. That's awesome. Praise God. I have my own apartment that I pay rent for. I pay the electric bill. I'm not relying on any funds from a man. Um, (laughs) I'm so proud of you. I love you, you, Mary. I really do. I mean, I am... I'm so proud of you. What a testimony. What an inspiration. What encouragement you are. And God had plans for you all along that he would use you in this way. And that's just such good news. And for those of you who are listening that that feel like, you know, maybe maybe it's you. Maybe you need to talk to Mary and we'll we'll get her information out for you. Or maybe it's a loved one or maybe you've been praying for a loved one all of these years, decades, like like people in Mary's life were praying for her. <sighs> I just would encourage you and I and I gosh, we've we're so out of time, but I'll just throw in and I wanted to be careful earlier, but I know that he wouldn't mind. My brother has been sober for gosh, I would think about the length that you've been sober, Mary. Um and I had okay. been on my knees for 35 yeah. years, you know, begging the Lord, why, why don't you answer these prayers? Why don't you stop this madness? Why is it always the clock is resetting? I'm three days sober. I'm four days sober. I'm two days sober. I'm two weeks, two months, a year, back to one. You know, like, why for 35 yeah. years did this happen? But my friends, God really does answer prayers. Don't give up on him. Don't give up on your loved one and never give up on yourself. Because though the enemy would convince you otherwise, I promise you the best is yet to come. If you do this, the best is yet to come. And I really do need to end this podcast or I won't be able to air it on Grace and Truth Radio, uh, Grace and Truth Radio World. So thank you, Mary. Thank you so much for being a part of this today, for coming to talk to us. Thank you for your willingness to help others in your transparency. Oh, Janet, thank you so much for having me. And I I do look forward to speaking with you again and... um Yeah. And I'll be talking to you about that. Yes, I think you should do it. I want to encourage you. You can do it. And I think that's your purpose because you have so much encouragement for those around you. And this is a real struggle and it's, um, it's very common. So thank you again. Yeah. And thank you for listening. The rest of you, I so appreciate it. Please continue to join us on Color Speak, wherever you find your podcasts and now on Grace and Truth Radio World. This is J.M. Huxley for Truth Talk on Color Speed, celebrating relevance, restoration, social influence, and dynamic purpose in all places 
and all seasons.